Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Amen. Open back up to 1 Samuel. Last time we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we'll be looking at the first part of 1 Samuel chapter 2. Little bit of review to get started. First of all, the the context for the book, the context for the history that's going on. The Philistines are a major affliction to the people of Israel at this time. They're a thorn in the side, we could say. If you turned over a few chapters in First Samuel, you see that the Philistines uh, you see the extent of their affliction of the people of Israel, even as we read this morning, Exodus chapter 25, about the tabernacle. In chapter 4 of Samuel, we see the tabernacle being laid waste and the Ark of the Covenant being taken out of the tabernacle and as loot for the Philistines. And so that's, that's where things are at this point. Um, as far as that tabernacle is concerned, it is not... Um, Eli is, is the priest and his sons are not good sons of priests, right? They are afflicting the people as well. Not only are the Philistines afflicting the people, but Eli's sons are. And um, they are the ones that should be ruling over the tabernacle and the sacrifices. But in 2.12... We read that the son, the sons of Eli were worthless men. That they they um, did not know the Lord. They did not know the Lord. Eli, the the priest, has sons who do not believe. And then all of this can be summarized in in the the naming of that son, Ichabod. Again, the end of chapter four. Son is born, his name is Ichabod, and that means the glory has departed. Things are are in a valley and in the history of uh, certainly the, the strength of God's people here, and things seem to be uh, coming uh, apart. And then a barren woman prays. A barren woman praying and asking the Lord for her womb to be opened up changes things. Her first prayer, you remember her first prayer. What is the content of that first prayer? How would you characterize it? She was begging for a son. Right? She was... Why was she so distraught? She, her, yeah, what would you call her? Not sister wife. Yeah, this was her her husband's other wife. uh, Rubbed that in. The fact that she was barren and the, the others were not. Or that she was not. And so that's part of her affliction. right? That's part of her crying out to the Lord. Make me fruitful. Make me, uh, give me a son. So she prays, prays, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me. 
She's feeling forgotten. And not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come upon his head. So even in asking for the son, she, she is giving that son up. Right? She's asking that the, the womb would be opened, and yet even in that prayer, she's, say, she's saying, provide and I will dedicate this son. Now, she makes a Nazarite vow, in a sense, for her son. There are, there are three, three um, men that we know are under a, a Nazarite vow, and they're all born of barren women. Samson, and then there's Samuel, and then who's the third? John the Baptist. Um, all, all coming from that context. Um, she calls in her prayer, in this prayer, she says, O Lord of hosts, uh, this Yahweh Sabaoth, first used in this book, and it, it points toward, I mean, and, it's, and it recurs, it points toward this book, which sets up the kingdom with the king, it points to the primacy of God over all the kings. It's, it's, it's this name that comes up in this book that points toward he being the one king of kings, the king over all kings, Yahweh as the ruler over all forces. And that's what, um, that's what she, uh, how she addresses God in this. Now, is this a faithful prayer? Is it faith-filled? Well, she's given what she asked for by God. Right? She's, she's given what she's asked for by God. And it's also selfless. In that, in the, in the sense of she gives him up to the Lord. Should God provide, he will give that son up to the Lord all the days of his life. Not a easy vow for a mother who is being afflicted by her husband's other wife about her barrenness. And so I say there's faith expressed in that prayer. Open my womb and then the fruit of that, that opening that I so desire I will give up to the Lord. Now, we see... In the first part of chapter 2, she, she prays aloud again, right? She prays again. This prayer is different than the first prayer. The first prayer was despairing, it was requesting, it was, it was expressing her affliction before the Lord. And now, now that she has been given a son, and the son has been, been given up to the Lord, she sings this this glorious song of praise she prays this prayer and and it's it's expansive i don't i don't know how best to put this but her prayer is it is certainly looking off into the future it's prophetic it is um it is glorious right it is 
filled with faith and faith in what God is going to be doing in the coming days, in the coming months, years, even all the way through history. She is thinking um, that large, right? So um, we see that she believes that God is at work in Israel through what is happening. And so there's much faith in this as well, right? Right? Everything looks bad. And here she is giving praise to God who is at work through these events. And so this is, this is not uh, a prayer of affliction. This is a prayer of exaltation. And, um, and, and, and what, I mean, there's so many angles to come at this from, but um, let me read it. So you know what I'm talking about, right? Second Samuel, I mean, First Samuel chapter 2. <clears throat> then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven. But she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills, makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust heap. From the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. To make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king. And will exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. And so... God opens her womb in order to bless his people. And it is the birth of Samuel. Hannah's fruitfulness after barrenness, in a sense, is a microcosm for what is happening in Israel as a whole. Barrenness is going to be taken away and replaced with fruitfulness. right? In the, in the nation, in the kingdom, right? And so... Um, barrenness is taken away by God, leading to fruitfulness, leading to joy. And she's perhaps one of the few who's seeing this. She's seeing it and she's singing of it. And so her barrenness is taken away. The fruit of her womb is a forerunner born preparing God's people for incredible blessing. And I think of Samuel as a forerunner because he's not king, right? He's not the, he's the, 
he's not the king. And yet we can see Samuel as a forerunner to whom? Don't say Saul. <laughs> say David. Right? <clears throat> he, is the, he is a forerunner in a sense. He is the one who, who brings along and brings the kingdom to David. And David is, a, is certainly a type of the, the coming of Christ and the messianic king to come. Right? You remember this. The, um, the words that were given to Mary. Remember, she was encouraged when it was announced to her that she would give birth. Right? She was perplexed. She was wondering. But she was also encouraged. And the words to Mary by the angel were this. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of whom? His father, David. Right? So Jesus is being announced as coming to occupy the throne of David. And David is called his father, his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. So in the beginning of the, the earthly kingdom here, in David being set up, we're seeing a picture of Jesus sitting on his throne as the king of Israel, but it's a permanent, everlasting, unending kingdom that is set up. So David's kingdom and, and rule is a pattern set for King Jesus' permanent kingdom. And all of this is what we read about in this book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. So as we study Samuel, as we study Saul, as we study David, Solomon, we learn of Jesus' reign as the king of kings. Now Hannah prays. This is her second prayer. And the content of this prayer makes us realize that Hannah understands in an extraordinary way what God is doing that God is at work doing something extraordinary, making something new, right? He's building up a kingdom. He's replacing barrenness with fruitfulness. He is bringing peace after warfare and affliction. He's bringing prosperity after poverty. I mean, the first way that we can think of Hannah's prayer is very simply as she's considering her own barrenness and then her fruitfulness and where's the affliction coming from? It's coming from Penina. And so, she, you know, that one verse in there where it says, even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. You know, you can see that the tables are turning as she's considering what is going on even in her own household. Things are beginning to change there. But certainly that is not the entire content of this prayer. I think the prayer, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the prayer breaks down into three sections. Verses 1 to 3, and then 4 to 8, and then 9 and 10 at the end. And so section 1, verses 1 to 3, what do you notice about the first verse? What repeats? The pronoun. The pronoun repeats, my, 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 my. Many first-person pronouns in that first verse. Clearly, she is rejoicing in her God, 
rejoicing in the salvation he has given her. She mentions three things. My heart, my horn, and my mouth. Right? My heart we understand. It's the inner man. It's the mind. It's the thoughts. Right? It, and her heart is doing what? Exalts in the Lord. And what's the difference between exalt and exalt? <laughs> and there's a different... Those are different words, right? Exalt with a U and exalt with an A. Right? Exalt with the U means what? To rejoice. Exalt with an A means to be lifted up, right? To, to rise up. And so he, here her, her heart is rejoicing in the Lord. Her, her mouth is speaking boldly against her enemies, because she is rejoicing in her salvation. Now, what, what is this? What is her horn? What is her horn? What is the meaning of that? Verse 10, it comes around too. Symbol of power. Do you have a... Um, it is a symbol of power, that's right. The horn... What do you think it's making? What, what kind of horn? What has horns? Rams do. Many animals do, right? And what do they do with those horns? What do they do? They fight with those horns, and when they fight, where are the horns? On their head, he said. That is true. They have a tendency to, to stay there. In flesh, yeah, they're stuck into another, hopefully into another animal's flesh. But when they fight, they're low, right? You put your horns down so as to make them weapons. But when you're done and you have victory, what do you do? You lift up your head. And you, if you're a, a male animal, you strut about, right? With your head held very high. I mean, you've seen deer do this. Right, grapple with one another over the woman, and then, and then when one has won, strutting about with his head held high in the air. And so th- this is, I think, referring to the horns of an animal used to gain victory over others. To raise the horn is to declare victory. Right? It's um, uh, Psalm seventy-five. Psalm seventy-five gives us a and an application or an expansion of this. Psalm 75 says this, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Men, declare your wondrous works. When I select an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. The earth and all who dwell in it melt. It is I who have firmly set its pillars. I said to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. It's telling the wicked, don't boast in your victory. Don't lift up your horn. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. But God is the judge. He puts down one. Sounds like Hannah's prayer. He puts down one and exalts another. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. But as for me, 
I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. And all the horns of the wicked will be cut off, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Right? The wicked have their horns cut off, no longer even able to attack. But the righteous, by God, right? it says they have their horns lifted up, lifted up in victory. And so here's Hannah. Here's Hannah proclaiming this great victory in the Lord. She's proclaiming just the glory that she would be able to lift her horn. And it is exalted in the Lord. It is lifted up in the Lord. So her heart rejoices before she was sad in heart. Her horn is lifted up before she was oppressed in spirit and she was trampled upon. And then her mouth opens wide. Before, in that first prayer, remember what she was accused of. Being drunk. Right? And see, you you think now her, her mouth is opening wide in clear, loud praise. Whereas before she was mumbling in her, her, um, her oppressed spirit. So, so this first verse is Hannah... Rejoicing in God. Rejoicing to see God at work. Rejoicing to see what he has done. And she's expressing it in a glorious way. There's great change. She is rejoicing in what God is doing to save his people. Now, verses 2 to 3. Verses 2 and 3, she is saying God is God. She is merely proclaiming that God is God. She says there is no one like him, that he is holy, that he is a rock, he is an immovable foundation. And then she says the proud, the proud are denounced, the Philistines, the priests, Eli, Eli's sons, the proud, right? They are denounced by this mother in Israel, even as she says this, boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. You think she's thinking of Penina. You think she's thinking of the afflictions of the priests and of the Philistines. And she's telling them, God sees. God knows. God sees what's going on, and he will bring every act to account. God knows and weighs actions. Psalm 11 is a psalm I think of. Psalm 11, verses 4 through 7. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. But that doesn't make him so so distant as to not be able to see, right? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, what does it say? God's soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves Righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Right? So, so God has seen what has gone on. Not only for in her own household, 
But God has seen what is going on with Hophni and Phinehas and what Eli has done. And he has seen the affliction of his people. And God is about to make distinctions. He's about to proclaim those that are wicked and those that are righteous. And he's about to do so in extraordinary ways. So the second section, verses 4 through 8, God's, uh, I would summarize this as she's proclaiming God's character as the, as a, as the sovereign ruler. Proclaiming his character as the sovereign ruler, which is important at this point, given what's coming. This is a preface to the book, right? It's proclaiming that the primary thing is that God is above all. And so as we later process through, was it right for them to ask for a king? Was it wrong for them to ask for a king? That is a question we have to look into. But right here, it's, it's God is king. God is sovereign over all of this. And regardless of the organization that comes, that cannot be lost. And so God does what? God does what? He defeats the mighty. He uplifts the weak. He, get, he satisfies the hungry. He, he takes the hungry and, or the, the satisfied and he makes sure that they don't have food. Right? He, he, the barren woman gives birth. The fruitful woman wastes away. Right? Penina. He kills. He makes alive, he brings down to death, he raises up to life, he impoverishes, he enriches, he, he brings down, he raises up, he brings down into the dust, he raises up, and it says ash heap, but it's actually dunghill. Raises up from the dunghill, from the, the nastiness, right? And, he, and it finishes by saying that he honors the poor. And then... After all of that, right, so, so the high are brought down, the low are brought up, tables are turned, the hungry hung, or, or are satisfied, those that are satisfied become hungry, everything is turned around, and God is the one who directs all of those affairs and brings that about. And then it, it concludes this section, it says, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. Now, this could mean a couple of things. Pillars of the earth could be referring to the powers of the earth, the rulers of the earth. That God is the one who has set up the pillars of the earth. Any authority is from God, right? And he is the one who, who, who gives that authority, right? So, but it could also just be a, a, a figure of speech that, that, that God created and sustains everything. And if you're the creator of something, you are obviously the sovereign over that thing. Right? If you create it and make it, that thing is yours. And that is exactly what God in creating everything that we see. Um, he has rule over it because of his creation of it. And so all of this section, it's the language of drastic change, of revolution, of serious upheaval, of the complete reordering of nations, of homes, of social orders, of political systems, of power structures. She's proclaiming this. 
So God is sovereign over them all. Why would we expect anything less from the one who created and upholds the world? So she is, she's proclaiming, it's the power of God that governs the world. Has that thought sunk into your bones? Right? We, we speak of it so often, but it's the power of God that governs the world. Right? It is God over everything. And so as we see nations prosper, who has done it? And as we see nations falter and their economies decimated, who has done it? God has done it. As we see cataclysms destroy countries, who's done it? God has done it. Right? As we see prosperity come, as we see blessings poured out, as we see fruitful crops, right? as we see, um, as we see the, the gross domestic product increase, right? and the trade deficits equalize out, right? who's done it? God has done those things. Right? We, we, we have to remember this as everybody chatters and chatters and chatters. That, they, that something must be done. Right? We don't need to despair. Have things gotten out of the hands of God? No, they have not. Has the world become independent? Has the world somehow fallen off those pillars that God set them on? Right? And so now he's watching, but impotent? No. Those foundations that the Lord placed the earth upon remain. There's also this. There's also this thought, and it was encouraging to me as I came to this. Here is, here's Hannah. She's asked for a child. The Lord has given her a child. She has hope because of that child. She looks beyond the child to see the, the fruitfulness of a nation. But it's a day of small things for her, isn't it? Right? It's a day of small things for her. She's, she's merely having a child. She's merely having a son, but here she is, like, seeing what's coming. Right? That she's smiling on the future. She's looking forward. And so it gives you hope in the day of small things that you should keep laboring. Right? Keep working. Keep going. Because God is, is, is working out. What he would have, should we labor during the day of small things? Certainly. Does he seek to bless the righteous for the sake of his own glory? Yes. You know, I thought of our work with, with personhood South Carolina. Trying to end abortion in South Carolina. And I think, what, do fi- what power do a few guys have? And then I thought of this passage. I thought, well, Hannah prayed. And along comes Samuel, and along comes the kingdom, and glorious things come. That line of the Savior of the world, right? And so we labor on, we we don't get discouraged in the midst of the day of small things, but we see beyond it. We, we are, we are we're, we're crazy, right, in looking forward and imagining the possibilities, because it is not us doing things in our own strength, but it is serving God who is 
omnipotent. Nothing is impossible for God. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, like Hannah. Despised, weak, barren. Chosen by the Lord. The things that are not, so that they may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. That is why God loves to lift up the weak. That is why God loves to lift up the the barren woman to give birth. It's because he's taking away the boast. The boast of anybody else who may have established what was coming. The fruit of a barren woman's womb is the beginning of the defeat of the Philistines, Philistines, as it were, and the establishment of a glorious kingdom. Think of Solomon's kingdom at its height. What does it say about Solomon's kingdom at, at its height? The whole earth was paying attention, right? The whole earth was coming to him. He had more wisdom and he had riches and everything was in its place and he had peace from over, the, over his entire, entire kingdom. Peace, right? And God is beginning to do that. What act of faith, a small thing, the birth of a child, the nurturing of a foster child, for adoption, a single conversation, a, a gift that you give, right? a, a, a ministry started, a church plant begun with three people in a living room, right? A, a kindness shown to somebody will lead to the growth of God's kingdom, right? Those those. Little things lead to the growth of God's kingdom. God delights, in fact, to work in just that manner. Right? Because it, it removes all the boast, all the boast, when you acknowledge that it is God who has done these things. Now, section three. And I, and I would say that, again, this expands out even further. She start, starts with my heart exulting in her, her salvation she moves on to contemplate that God is a sovereign king. And now she, 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 by God's grace, is seeing even further than that. And she's speaking of the Lord's anointed coming down, down the road, right? And so um, this is the final order of things, right? She sees how God has helped her, how God's going to help the nation, and how God's going to help the earth, and all of mankind, and all of history. So it opens up to that, and this is the final order, what all is working toward in God's glorious plan. The godly are kept. The godly are kept. Right? <clears throat> he keeps the feet of his godly ones. Right? He keeps their feet. They, they have a foundation. They don't slip. They don't fall away. The wicked, however, however presently strong, however presently successful, however presently doing what they are doing to afflict the righteous, 
The wicked are what? Think of these words that are used here. Silenced. They are shattered. They are thundered upon. And they are ultimately judged. Silenced, shattered, thundered upon, and judged. They are silenced. Their mouths are shut. Those mouths that have been used to afflict the righteous, they are shattered. They are their, their knees are broken, right? And they're, they're, they're denounced, thundered upon by God himself. And then judged. The judgment is pronounced. And so these distinctions are made. And then finally, these last few verses, the Lord will judge the end of the earth and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. Of course, this is a double fulfillment. It's fulfilled in David. It's fulfilled ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's anointed. Jesus the Messiah will reign as king. His horn, the horn of Jesus Christ, will be lifted up in victory. Now, it's often that commentators make a comparison between Hannah's song and Mary's Magnificat, right? This, they sort of stand, uh, they're similar in a lot of the themes that, that are uh, expressed in that. But I want to conclude by looking at Zechariah's prophecy, which was proclaimed when? When the forerunner of Jesus was born, Zechariah, who is John the Baptist's father, gives this glorious um, song again. It's a prayer, but it, but it seems, it, it reads like a fulfillment of what Hannah is talking about here, right? So turn there, it's in Luke chapter 1. So just as Hannah was the forerunner, or was the, the, the parent of a forerunner, so is... Um, Zacharias, the father of a forerunner. So in the birth of Jesus, Zechariah sees in fulfillment what Hannah saw in microcosm in the coming kingdom. Hannah looked forward to deliverance and to ultimate fulfillment coming in Christ. And, and here, listen to these words. This is Luke 1 at 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness 
and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. So you see many of the themes here, but you see it. She's looking forward and it's much more of a distant thought, but it's there. And he is now now close to the birth of King Jesus, right? And the, And his son has come and there have been promises and fulfillments and he's praising God for the salvation, the raising of a horn of salvation that's coming. And so, you know, so you see this, this line connected through all of these songs in Scripture. We could, we could pull in Mary's here too. But, but just think back to the state of the kingdom of God at the beginning of 1 Samuel. All, there's all this glory at the outset of the book. Yes, we're going to see terrible things in the book. We're going to see glorious things in the book. We're going to see prophecies that are fulfilled that are doubly fulfilled in Jesus, right? But, but there's all of this glory packed into what Hannah is saying here at the beginning of this book. She is looking forward through all of time. She is looking forward and trusting that, that God is sovereign over all things. And so she can be at rest. She can be at peace. There is much more to come all the way up to the day when Christ does what? He raises up his horn and makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the faith of Hannah. Thank you that we have her prayer recorded and that we see, we see her trusting in you. We see her looking forward. We see her not despairing when things are at a low point. We see her hopeful in receiving even, even the smallest of your blessings. We see that she has hope. And so, Father, I pray that uh, we would be like that that we would hope in you, that we would trust in your sovereign plan, and that we would look for the coming of Jesus and the, the ordering of everything, the consummation of his kingdom. Father, thank you that these are the things that we get to think about in, during these days, during our lives. And we will one day see the reality of it. Lord, we thank you for this, and we praise you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.